Israel agrees to give civilians four hours a day to flee the fighting in northern Gaza as the war against Hamas intensifies. It's Friday, November 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up after this week's elections, we'll take a look at whether Democrats are feeling energized heading into 2024. Also, one government agency wants to turn thinking about cybersecurity into a regular part of your daily routine. We want to make cyber hygiene as commonplace as buckling your seatbelt or brushing your teeth. And this hour? I think beer is such a great lens for bridging East and West and also using a bit of diplomacy to really talk about India. Ahead of the holiday of Diwali, an Indian craft beer company brews something new here in Boston. Clouds today in the 50s in Boston. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says more must be done to save lives and move aid into war-torn Gaza. Speaking in New Delhi at the end of an intensive nine-day diplomatic tour, Blinken said far too many Palestinians have died and more must be done to protect civilians. In the Gaza Strip, home to 2.3 million residents, Israeli troops are pushing deeper into dense urban neighborhoods, engaging Hamas militants in gun battles there. Increasing numbers of civilians are fleeing south. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Israel has committed to pausing its airstrikes for a few hours at a time in certain areas. For several days, Israel had designated one inland corridor for civilians fleeing south. The White House says a second seaside route is now being opened. But fuel shortages mean people are fleeing on foot in hot conditions. A man named Abu Mohammed told NPR's Gaza producer, The road is lined with tanks and dead bodies, he says. People are panting from exhaustion. We have no bread or water, he says. The United Nations says some people have to walk this route for 12 miles. The UN Special Rapporteur on the Palestinian Territories calls these stop-and-go attacks, quote, cynical and cruel. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The FBI is investigating threatening letters sent to election offices in five states where ballots are counted. Authorities say at least two of those letters tested positive for fentanyl. Steve Hobbs is Washington's Secretary of State. This is a form of domestic terrorism. That's all that it is. Uh, And and unfortunately, uh, what they're doing is putting innocent people at risk and disrupting our elections. The letters were sent to Nevada, California, Georgia, Oregon, and Washington state. Some election offices were evacuated. Aviation experts are telling Congress there's reason to be concerned about a series of close calls on airport runways this year, even as airlines, lawmakers and regulators look for ways to improve technology and communications. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homedy testified that the increase in near misses at airports this year is a clear warning sign that the U.S. aviation system is sharply strained. It only takes one missed warning to become a tragedy, one incorrect response to destroy public confidence in a system that has been built over decades. Other aviation experts warn the panel that chronic staffing shortages are forcing air traffic controllers to work mandatory overtime, six-day work weeks, and 10-hour days. The NTSB has opened seven investigations into near-miss incidents on airport runways since January. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Dow Futures up 47. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. For the first time in its 40-year history, the Massachusetts family shelter system has hit its limit. The state says it can no longer guarantee housing to families in need, so for now, they will go on a waiting list. The Healy administration says the situation is a result of a rise in people experiencing homelessness and an influx of migrant families. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports families on the wait list will be prioritized by several criteria. So those fleeing domestic violence and those with certain medical conditions like a high-risk pregnancy, they will be bumped up on the list. But this doesn't mean they get a room right away. State officials are looking at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston and other locations as possible sites for temporary housing. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering a bill that would require school IDs to include a suicide hotline phone number. Alden Bourne reports they heard testimony on the idea this week. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number would be mandated on student IDs issued by public schools that serve students in grades 6 through 12 and state-supported higher education institutions. Karen Carrera of Ludlow spoke in favor of the bill. She lost her 15-year-old son to suicide five years ago. In the moments when I allow myself to look back and think through what helped Nathan, and what didn't help Nathan, and what could I have done different? I wonder if having access to a simple three-digit number could have made all the difference. In a 2021 survey of Massachusetts high school students, almost 15% said they'd seriously considered suicide in the past year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. School leaders in two Metro West communities are demanding better service from their school bus providers. Officials in Framingham and Marlboro tell the Boston Herald that the company NRT Bus frequently does not have enough buses for all the routes it has contracts for. NRT blames the problem on a shortage of drivers and dispatchers. Hundreds of American flags are now on display at the Fallen Heroes Memorial in the seaport. Each flag honors a service member from Massachusetts who has died since the September 11th attacks. Molly Broderick is with the group Mass Fallen Heroes, which organized the display. And when you're looking at those flags, you know, I think it's easy to get caught up in the world around us and our day-to-day and our little bubbles. Um, But if you take a step back and think about, you know, what it really means for selfless service, you know, there's, there's always a benefit to that. The group also puts flags on display in the seaport for September 11th and Memorial Day. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose and now in Beverly. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Charlie Coyle had a hat trick for the Bruins last night. The Bruins beat the New York Islanders 5-2 at the Garden. The Bees visit the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Brooklyn Nets. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the low 50s. Temperatures overnight dropping into the 30s. Then you can expect sunshine tomorrow, high near 50 degrees. Sunny again on Sunday and temperatures in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Total Wine and More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list, from champagne to single-barrel bourbon. TotalWine.com. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina, available to adults 21 or older.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. And I'm e. Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. For political junkies, it has been quite a week. Just last night, Senate Democrat Joe Manchin announced he won't seek re-election in ruby red West Virginia. Early in the week, Democrats were fretting about Joe Biden's chances at re-election because a crop of swing state polls showed him losing key states to Donald Trump. But then the party got a bit of a boost with a strong showing in Tuesday's election results. And... At midweek, Republicans not named Trump took the stage, the bait stage in Miami. Now, here to help us uh, put it all into context, NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. So, Domenico, what do we make of all this? I mean, should Democrats be stressed, relaxed, or just feel good about Tuesday's results? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, all of that's true. You know, there are real concerns about President Biden's popularity, particularly his age. I mean, I can't tell you how many people bring up his age unprompted to me um, and really believe that there's no chance he's going to run. But I mean, short of a McConnell moment where he freezes in public, Biden's the guy. You know, I don't think quite Democrats have even really completely wrapped their heads around that yet. All right. But Democrats have to be thrilled about Tuesday. I mean, Ohio voters adding abortion rights to their state constitution. That had to make them happy. It definitely did. I mean, you know, they really feel like the issues overall are on their side, especially abortion. You know, expect Democrats, I think, for 2024 to try to put abortion on the ballot in as many states as possible to try to keep their voters motivated. I mean, it's been a real loser for Republicans. You know, even in red states that lean toward them, Republicans are losing on this issue over and over again. The debate, you know, made that pretty apparent too this week. You know, the candidates just don't quite know how to talk about it in a way to win over the middle. You know, they try to use crime to offset pro-abortion rights sentiments, especially among women in the suburbs. That failed again in this election. Um, And at the same time, the overarching issue facing everyone in the country, especially working class voters, we can't lose focus of, is the economy. You know, voters in swing states have been saying that they feel hard hit by gas and grocery prices. Uh, You know, even if there are signs that the overall economy is pretty strong. All right, let's talk about polls uh, from the New York Times and Siena College and CNN. They all show Trump uh, leading Biden nationally, even in some key swing states. Domenico, I've been traveling up and down Iowa. And whenever I ask voters here about polls, they roll their eyes before (laughs) I finish the question. So how should people be feeling about these polls or any polls for that matter? I'm someone who reads a lot of polls and I'm rolling my eyes right now. You can't see. But, um, you know, again, look, there's reason for Democrats to be concerned. You know, Biden's coalition, as one Democratic strategist told me this week, is really an anti-coalition, anti-Trump specifically. So it can't be it can really be the subject of fluctuations. You know, people are registering their frustrations with the economy, with world events, with Biden himself, who younger voters in particular, as we know, we're never really in love with. Um, Clearly, Biden has work to do to set the stakes, to reassemble and fight up this coalition. But there's reason for Republicans to be concerned, too, with Trump at the top of the ticket. You know, his numbers have been toxic with independence and a focused Democratic campaign with Trump on the ballot would likely, for the most part, you know, for the most part, rebuild the 2020 Biden coalition. So when it comes to these polls specifically, you know, we've always expected these half dozen states that Siena polled to be close. And that's how we're shaping our coverage. You know, it's not a great place for an incumbent to start from. But horse race polls a year out from an election when campaigning isn't really happening in earnest just aren't worth a ton. I just wouldn't focus on that. You know, things can change. The environment can change. Polls have value, but they're not votes and they shouldn't uh, be overread. All right. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Domenico, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
International observers are warning that conditions in Gaza are so dire that an outbreak of infectious disease is almost inevitable. Israel cut off food, fuel, and water as it expanded its airstrikes and now its ground operation, which it says are aimed at uprooting Hamas. The UN says the trickle of aid that has come through the border with Egypt is just a drop in the ocean compared to the need. Plus, fuel isn't being allowed in amid concern from the Israelis that Hamas could weaponize it. Abudo Cal is an American who was visiting Gaza with his family when war broke out. He talked about what it was like to spend 27 days trying to get out. On many of those days, we did not have drinking water. We would have to go look out for it for hours. I think that was another hard part is that not even caring about what we would drink. I mean, ultimately, we would get whatever we would get, food poisoning or et cetera, if we drank non-drinking water. Bob Kitchen is the vice president for emergencies at the International Rescue Committee, and he joins us now on Skype to discuss the humanitarian crisis. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So the World Health Organization says it's already seeing more cases of things like chickenpox, upper respiratory infections. What is your organization seeing that prompted your warning about the spread of disease? So let's be clear, the primary threat to life right now is is tanks and airstrikes. Yes. But we're now facing a real threat from the consequences of the conflict. 1.5 million people have been forced to flee their homes and they're now sheltering in schools and other public buildings. Significant overcrowding um, combined with a 92% reduction in water drives real risk of contagious diseases. It's basically a case of when rather than if we'll see cholera and other life-threatening diseases. Let me just say we're hearing about terrible situations from staff working with organizations we support on the ground. Mm -hmm. In one camp in Khan Yunus, 50,000 people are sheltering together and they only have access to four toilets. 50,000 people to four toilets. We'll start seeing people fall ill really soon. And without clinics and medicines, even curable sicknesses represent an imminent threat to life life for children and other vulnerable people. Well, let's talk about the hospital situation. I mean, we've been talking to doctors, people in Gaza who are describing hospitals without anesthesia, hospitals that are no longer functioning, out of fuel, damaged by attacks. And that's just people talking about the thousands and thousands of wounded that they're treating. But if you do get sick, what happens? You're sick. And you you face the risk of, of loss of life. The situation is is really catastrophic. More than a hundred hospitals have been attacked. We're receiving word this morning of a, a new attack on a uh, the Al Shifa hospital. We we don't know yet the number of lives that have been lost, but it's it's continual. So hospitals are overwhelmed. As you say, they don't have anesthetics, so people are being um, operated without anesthesia, which is just terrifying. They're discharging people as rapidly as they can because the the inflow is, is so large of people coming in with, with new trauma. So people who have waterborne diseases are, are a long way down the list of priorities right now, but that will have a toll on, on civilian lives as well soon. Yeah, I mean, we heard from our own correspondent about uh, the reports of that attack on a maternity ward at El Shifa Hospital. We're still reporting that out. We haven't heard back from the Israeli military either yet. I mean, these humanitarian pauses, uh, are they a way to address any of these issues, getting aid in to where it needs to be, preventing the outbreak of diseases? 
It's huge. It's it's critical right now. We care less about the terminology of pauses or humanitarian ceasefires. What we care about is that we have sufficient duration to deliver humanitarian aid. And with so much damage and humanitarian suffering, that really does take time. Uh, let me tell you the four things we think need to happen right now um, to, to make a difference. And that's, we need to change the current trickle of aid to a robust flow of aid. The number of trucks that are able to get in from Egypt to Rafa is, is tiny compared to the, the basic essentials for keeping 2 million people alive. So we need a massive scale up of aid. We also, you said earlier about the, the consequence of fuel. We have to get fuel in if we're, we're going to be able to, to distribute the aid once it's into Gaza and get the lights back on in hospitals. The second thing we need to do is you can't deliver aid without aid workers. So we need safety for aid workers. We're seeing reports of more than 90 UN workers killed and many more NGO staff have lost their lives. Only four out of the previous 70 NGOs in Gaza are still able to work. If we can't work, we can't save lives. And so it has to be safe for us. And then we also need it to be safe for civilians to receive aid. They have to be able to come together to collect the aid. The, the stuff we have to give out, they have to come and get it. People need to be able to go to clinics and hospitals to receive uh, treatment. Uh, so it has to be safe for people to move. And then finally, we have to have safe and accessible routes to evacuate the most sick. Mm -hmm. And then they have to be able to return. So that is a, a huge task that the current four hours on the table is, is woefully inadequate. Bob Kitchen is vice president for emergencies at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. From on a recent afternoon at King Gillette Ranch, about an hour north of Los Angeles, 47 people from 18 countries became U.S. citizens. It's a ceremony that more typically would take place in a stuffy federal courtroom. But this setting was surrounded by rolling hills under a bright California sun. Candidates, can you please raise your right hand? Please repeat after me. I hereby declare on oath Officials of the federal office in charge of citizenship and immigration have been choosing scenic and historic sites from the National Mall in Washington to Ellis Island in New York as backdrops for naturalization ceremonies. Ana Beatriz Cholo is a spokesperson for the National Park Service. This is a good place for them to get an introduction and become future stewards of their public spaces, which now belong to them. The initiative is meant to foster relationships between public lands and new citizens like Max Mamarov, who's been in the U.S. for a while. Twelve years is a long way, so I already felt it as my home. So now I just got a piece of paper. But, you know, I felt as an American, I guess, from the day I stepped on the land. The ceremonies also honor the national park history and the stories of the people who shaped them. Rob Sanders is with the Citizenship Agency office in the San Fernando Valley. There's a great history of not just natural-born citizens, but immigrants as well. Um, there's stories throughout the National Park Service. So it's been uh, really great to help celebrate that, that sense of diversity. Aziz Ahmed came to the United States from Afghanistan in 2016 with his family. It's a really big day for me and my family. I feel so excited. And, uh, and this, is the, this is exactly what the people say. It's a land of opportunity in the country of immigrants, you know. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations to all of you. Let's give a round of applause. Congratulations indeed. This is NPR News. 
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for starting your Friday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, 90% of Iowa's residents identify as white. In the city of Perry, Latinos represent more than a third of the population. You'll hear about how they respond to anti-immigrant rhetoric from Republican candidates. It's 720. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales, committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity. We're a year out from the presidential election, and already a political battle is brewing over misinformation. But conservative backlash has some experts scared to talk about the problem. In Republican circles, misinformation is a dog whistle. You know, it blew up and all of a sudden, man, you got skewered if you even mentioned the word. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. It is 43 degrees in Boston, highs in the low 50s today, and lows overnight in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow, Saturday's highs near 50, sunny again Sunday in the mid-40s. Heads up for MBTA passengers today. The T is running all its services on a regular Friday schedule today. That's even though many businesses are closed to observe Veterans Day a day early. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Climate change means more flooding. And communities from California to New York are facing the same difficult question. Is the flood risk in some areas too high for habitation? Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk visited a town that's had some success in tackling the problem. Stephanie and Nicholas Separulo loved their house in Lambertville, New Jersey. My family had been on the property for over 100 years, so we were pretty comfortable in that sense, thinking that we were safe. But the climate is changing, and in September 2021, there was a heavy, heavy rainstorm. More than an inch of rain was falling every 30 minutes. Things went wrong fast. By the time they got their kids in the car and drove up the hill, they could see their shed floating away. They made it to a relative's house and then waited. My cousins went down. And they called and they said, you need to go to bed. Don't come down here. You don't want to. So. So we went to bed. (laughs) Had a few drinks and went to bed. In the morning, the scale of their loss became clear. The house had been swept off its foundation. Our one-year-old daughter's room took the brunt of it. That room was taken down to the studs. Her light fixture was there and that was it. 
the children's bed frames were crushed against a neighbor's house. Our son's bedspread was hanging from a tree. It was clear to them that this place that had been home for her family for generations was no longer safe. They'd need to figure out what to do next. Now, luckily, the Saparulo family lives in New Jersey. And New Jersey is arguably the national leader in protecting people from flooding, new research shows. Nick Angarone is New Jersey's director of resilience. He says heavy rain, like what happened to the Saparulos, is a huge problem for his marshy state. It's coming down faster than our infrastructure can handle it. And it's coming down faster than even our natural systems can handle it. You know, several inches of rain in a very, very short period of time. And so in the last decade or so, New Jersey has done a bunch of things to get people out of the path of all that water. It's now harder to build new homes in flood zones. And homes that are already there have to be safer, for example, by elevating them on stilts. If you buy a house in New Jersey, you now get information about whether it's flooded in the past. And the state has purchased more than 1,000 houses in the last decade to knock them down and provide more open space for flood water. New Jersey may offer a blueprint for other densely populated states that are grappling with climate-driven flooding. Angrone says one big lesson is that changing where and how to build our homes is hard. You're talking about some of the basic principles of the country is kind of, you know, where and what you can do with, with your property. One town where that conversation has been playing out is Woodbridge, New Jersey. So yeah, the, the Tom Flynn is the town's floodplain manager. He took me on a walk through a neighborhood near downtown. As you can see directly in front of you, that house had to be elevated. The house in front of us is on stilts. The first floor is maybe 15, 20 feet off the ground. At the end of the neighborhood, the road ends in a walking path. There was a home here. There were actually, I think, two or three homes here. We keep walking deeper into the marsh. This trail intersection was Watson Avenue. All of this to your left was homes. I mean, it looks like a full marsh. There are, you can hear the bugs, there are trees, flowers. Goldenrod, bone set setting. It's just, it's gorgeous. Where there used to be dozens of homes, now there's just swamp. John McCormick is the longtime mayor of Woodbridge. That's something we wanted to do, but we had to do it. This is McCormick's hometown. He has deep roots, and he still remembers an excruciating town meeting that he presided over in the high school auditorium right after Superstorm Sandy flooded hundreds of homes. I mean, standing up there on the auditorium stage, looking out at 400 people whose lives were just upended is not easy. It was difficult. People were angry. You know, somebody's talking to you about moving out of their home that they've been in for 60 years, and, and it's their biggest investment in their life. McCormick says from day one, the city government supported home buyouts as one option to help people get out of harm's way. And he thinks that helps people make the difficult decision to sell their homes and move. I think they were comfortable knowing that we were okay with it. You know, if that makes sense, we weren't fighting it. A lot of towns were objecting to the fact that they were going to lose the properties from their tax base, I guess. But when they saw the town was essentially encouraging them to leave town, I think that psychologically meant something to them. Say, wait a minute, there must be something to this if the mayor's telling me it's okay to go. In the end, about 180 homes were demolished in Woodbridge. Flynn, the floodplain manager, says the extra open space helped protect the remaining houses during recent storms. And 
Despite losing some tax base, town leaders say Woodbridge is thriving. It's still one of the largest towns in the state, and new housing is going up in denser areas near train stations and highways. They are slowly, imperfectly, remaking their town to better withstand climate change, which is also what Stephanie and Nick Saprulo are doing for their family. The day after the rainstorm destroyed their family home, a city employee suggested they should consider a buyout. And we were both like, yes. <laughs> yes, we'll sign up for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I, I think they. I think they were like, "Oh, we're there already." But yeah. you see your children's beds break up and never find their mattresses, and you're like, "No, we're never going to do that again." And they couldn't live with the idea that someone else would end up living there in danger, because New Jersey's buyout program is permanent. It exists all the time, not just after a major disaster, unlike other states. They were able to apply immediately. The mayor of their town supported their decision, even though it meant losing property taxes on the torn-down home. And a case manager who works for the state helped them navigate the process, which took about two years. That's quick compared to other places. Today, they live about 15 minutes away at the top of a hill. I told the realtor, I said I want a house on a hill with no basement and no water near it. <laughs> and she found it. We feel safe here, and that's the important part. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Today's top stories are next here on 90.9 WBUR. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a Boston-brewed Indian craft beer company celebrates Diwali with its first India Pale Ale. It is part of its mission to share Indian culture through hops. Calling all crafters, join us at City Space next week for an arts and crafts evening dedicated to homemade creations. That's Monday, November 13th. For free tickets, go to wbur.org events. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says more needs to be done to protect civilians in Gaza and to ramp up deliveries of humanitarian aid. Speaking in India today, Blinken said far too many Palestinians have died since Israel's military began attacking Hamas in response to the militants' deadly assault in southern Israel last month. It left about 1,400 people dead. The Palestinian health ministry says more than 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza. NPR's Peter Kenyon says Israeli airstrikes in Gaza City have hit near hospitals as civilians try to flee to the south. Israel has released a list with hundreds more names of people approved to cross from the Gaza Strip into Egypt. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed as officials called for protection for children's hospitals. Israel has repeatedly called for civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate their homes and move south. Reports that Israel agreed to pauses in attacks in certain areas to facilitate the evacuation drew a sharp response from the UN Special Rapporteur for the Palestinian Territories, who said, quote, there won't be any way back after what Israel is doing to the Gaza Strip. Israel has vowed to eliminate Hamas as a security threat. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Israel is implementing daily pauses in the fighting in northern Gaza. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Public school teachers in Andover are on strike today. Schools in the district were set to open today, despite the Veterans Day holiday. The teachers union says educators want better pay and paid family and medical leave. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. That has not stopped teachers in several other public schools from striking in the past two years. Those districts include Brookline, Malden, Woburn, and Haverhill. Governor Healy is filing legislation that she says will help veterans. She says the so-called HERO Act will increase benefits, improve services, and promote inclusivity for Massachusetts veterans. The governor believes it will benefit hundreds of thousands of veterans living in the state. It will increase the disabled veteran annuity by 25%. It will increase by the same amount the veterans' higher tax credit, which will incentivize employers to hire more veterans. Healy adds the act will give cities and towns an option to double property tax exemptions for veterans. The MBTA says it needs to impose significant closures over the next year to do away with slow zones. They've been plaguing the system for the last eight months. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more on the T's plan. The T's general manager, Phil Ang, says the track improvement program will take a little more than a year. By the end of 2024, we will eliminate all the speed restrictions that currently exist. The plan will require service disruptions across subway lines, according to the T's chief engineer, Sam Zhao. To tackle these uh, speed restrictions, we calculated it requires about 188 days of outage. Once all 190 slow zones have been eliminated, Ang says the T will be able to focus on modernizing the system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins beat the New York Islanders 5-2 last night at the Garden. The Bees visit the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets. It's 43 degrees in Boston, highest today in the low 50s. Temperatures tonight dropping into the 30s. Sunny tomorrow, Saturday's high around 50. And on Sunday, sunny again, highs in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, in theaters everywhere today. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Amy Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. As of this week, we are officially less than a year out from the next presidential election. And because Iowa will play a big role in setting up the field of Republican candidates with its January caucus, we've spent the last week here talking to voters about how they're thinking and feeling about the next election. A focal point of domestic policy over the past few presidencies has been immigration, as the number of illegal border crossings is reaching record numbers. And those vying for the Republican nomination are clear in their attempt to limit immigration, or, as Donald Trump said this week at a rally, 
And we will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. Statements just like that play to the fears of some Iowa residents who think an influx of migrants in their communities only brings with it crime and economic downturns. The people have changed here, that's what I'm trying to say, and some of them is not so good. That is Jim Kavner. He's lived in and around the city of Perry since 1969. And the city has changed a lot in the last 50-some years. By the year 2060, the U.S. Census Bureau predicts that one in every four Americans are likely to be Latinos. Perry is a glimpse into that future. Latinos here now make up roughly one-third of its residents. As Jim and I sat and chatted at a roadside diner, I could see that he felt annoyed by all this change. So I asked Jim what he thought, as he put it, was not so good. Maybe the cartel. So many drugs around here. Yeah, this just went downhill. There's no evidence of a drug cartel in Perry, but tying migrants to crime is a talking point across a large swath of the GOP, a point that's landed for Jim, who pines for the past. Working toward the future is Eddie Diaz, a counterpoint to Jim's unfounded fears. His family was working the strawberry fields in California, and he says they wanted to find an easier job. So they found meatpacking plants, which is not a super easy job, but compared to farm labor, uh, it treated them better. So they moved here along with many, many other immigrants um, for the meatpacking plants. Factories like the Tyson plant in Perry draw Latinos from all over who eventually can become part of the city's fabric, the way Eddie did becoming a city council member. It's a working class community manufacturing town, a railroad town has been through various transformations over the years. and. It's just full of people that are gritty and work their butts off to make things happen. But even though Latinos have shown to be a benefit to Perry and other similar communities across the country, Eddie says Donald Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric exposed underlying feelings of resentment. The tenor of conversations got strained. Things that were not as blatant before became much more in your face. So yeah, there's definitely situations where you heard things that you may not have heard before. Listening to the current crop of GOP presidential candidates, he wonders if those situations could bubble up again. For example, listen to Ron DeSantis. We're sending the military to the border. Yes, we will build a border wall and we will use deadly force against the Mexican drug cartels because I'm sick of them poisoning our kids, I'm sick of them killing our citizens, and I'm sick of them trafficking people into this country. Jeffrey Fuentes owns a body shop in Perry. He was born in Los Angeles and is of Salvadorian heritage. He moved here two decades ago and is now 33 years old. He volunteers at his church and considers himself an Iowan despite not getting a friendly welcome when he first got here as a kid. We experienced some racism and stuff, you know, in the beginning and kind of got into trouble with that and stuff, you know, trying to defend myself from that, I remember. Jeffrey says that life in Perry is pretty good overall, even if some people still have problems with the growing Latino population. You know, they're kind of accepting us because there's no other way, I guess, you know. There's power in their numbers, says Jeffrey, that can override any fears a GOP nominee may try and whip up again.
The Department of Homeland Security hopes to make cyber hygiene as routine as brushing your teeth. The agency is launching a new public service campaign to promote simple steps you can take to protect yourself from online threats. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin has the story. Remember being told, see something, say something, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks? Homeland security starts with hometown security, and we all have a role to play. Working together, we can all help secure our country. If you see something, say something. Or Smokey Bear giving you fire safety tips. Only you can prevent forest fires. It's catchy and people still remember it. That's where Jen Easterly comes in. She's the director of DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA for short. It's better than saying the actual name, which is so cumbersome and hard to say. Her goal with a new cybersecurity awareness campaign and public service announcement is to make cybersecurity itself less cumbersome, less scary for the average person. Now that everyone's heard of ransomware or had a loved one scammed by cybercriminals, she thinks people are ready to hear it. So we want to make cyber hygiene as commonplace as buckling your seatbelt or brushing your teeth. The slogan is secure our world to drive home the point that basically our whole world is digital now. And it's got four pieces of advice. First, strong passwords. So no one, two, three, four. Make it complex. Don't reuse passwords. And even better, use a password manager that stores them for you. That way, you remember one password and your device remembers the rest. Step two, turn on multi-factor authentication. When you have your sensitive accounts, you typically have a login and a password. So use one other factor, whether that's an SMS message that's sent to you or using an authenticator app. Third, keep an eye out for phishing emails and report them when you see them. And finally, update your software. Those simple tips can prevent the vast majority of cyber attacks, says Easterly. And she says you'll start seeing the new PSA in football stadiums, airports, on TV. Our head of external affairs was at a football game, and she's like, oh, the Secure Our World just came up. It might be an uphill battle to make Secure Our World stick, like previous public service campaigns, or even popular ad slogans like Got Milk or Just Do It. But Easterly, a big music fan, has some ideas to help get it stuck in people's heads. I've been long obsessed with the idea of a cyber schoolhouse rock. Well, now I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us this Friday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, Senator Joe Manchin says he won't seek re-election. The West Virginia Democrats' decision might hurt the party's chances of holding on to a slim majority in the Senate. 43 degrees in Boston, highest today in the low 50s with clouds around. Temperatures tonight dropping into the 30s. Sunny tomorrow, a high on Saturday near 50 degrees. And on Sunday, sunny again, highs in the mid 40s.
WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org, and Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices, Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. The Massachusetts economy grew more than expected from July to September, but things are expected to cool off in the months to come. According to the UMass Donahue Institute, the state's gross domestic product is expected to grow half as much this quarter compared to the previous quarter. The Institute's Mark Melnick says low unemployment and an aging workforce are the main reasons why. It's just the lack of available labor to really grow uh, the economy, right? A job can't exist if there's no one there to fill it. Melnick says Massachusetts needs to find more ways to attract and retain workers in the long term. He says that includes finding ways to make the state more affordable for low to moderate income families. Mass General Brigham is offering buyouts for its digital employees as it looks to cut down its workforce. Digital team members are part of the hospital network's technology division. The Boston Herald reports the employees have until next week to decide whether to take the buyouts. It is unclear how many people are affected. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Sharon Brody. Diwali is this Sunday. It is India's biggest holiday. To celebrate the Festival of Lights, Rupi, an Indian craft beer brewed in Boston, is releasing its first India Pale Ale. There are countless IPAs on the market these days, but this one is illuminating the style's oft-forgotten history. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports on Rupi's new beer and the company's mission to share Indian culture one can at a time. Walk into a brewery or restaurant, and you'll likely find at least one India Pale Ale on the menu. The style's ubiquity wasn't lost on Van Sharma and his brother after debuting their company in 2021. When we joined the world of beer, number one question being Indian is that, hey, you must have an IPA, and we didn't. So for us, we knew eventually we would introduce an IPA that really fit into the ethos of Rupi. Rupi's ethos is inspired by the 33-year-old's culture and childhood. His parents emigrated from London to Portland, Maine in 1990 and opened the state's first Indian restaurants. As a kid, Sharma says his brown skin confused his peers. Number one thing I used to get in third grade when you're studying Native American tribes is, oh, Van's uh, American Indian. So they never understood what India was, especially in a place like Maine, which is so homogenous. I feel like I grew up always having to 
show people. It was also challenging to get Indian beers delivered to his parents' restaurants. After college and time in London, Sharma returned home to help out during the pandemic. Supply chain issues made it worse. There was a lot of people in Maine asking for Indian beer. Kingfisher, Taj Mahal, iconic Indian brands. So we said, why don't we just create our own? Sharma and his brother set out to develop easy-to-drink, lightly carbonated beers that would pair perfectly with Indian food and spicy flavors. When your tongue is on fire from spice, carbonation is one of the worst things you can bring to it. It amplifies the heat and the irritation as well. Sharma studied international relations and says they also wanted their beer to tell a cross-cultural story. I think beer is such a great lens for bridging east and west and also using a bit of diplomacy to really talk about India. But the Sharma brothers were entrepreneurs, not brewers, so they started searching for a pro. I spoke to tons of great brewing houses all over in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, across the United States, and literally down the road from our parents' house, Alan Pugsley was hanging out. Alan Pugsley is a craft beer pioneer of 40 years. He co-founded Portland Shipyard Brewing Company in the 90s and has consulted on more than 100 brewery and beer projects around the world. And being British, he also understood Indian food extremely well, so he got it. I thought it was great because I love Indian food. To make Ruby's flagship beer, Pugsley says he and Sharma's family tasted a bunch of Indian beers, along with dishes from their restaurant. Eventually, he designed a balanced basmati rice lager. The idea of making a history-inspired India pale ale also intrigued Pugsley. The one thing we didn't want to do is create another New England IPA, which is completely unrelated to the actual Indian pale ale that was made in the first place. When the British occupied India, 19th century English brewers formulated sturdy IPAs for a reason. In order to preserve the beer on the voyage from England to India, they used to make it the beer with a higher alcohol level and then also with a heavy dose of hops because hops are also natural preservatives. So the beer would survive the 90-day or so voyage. In a crowded New England IPA market, Pugsley appreciates Rupee putting the India back in India Pale Ale. Consumers can read all about it on the beer can's label. This is the canning line, and then we have a few labels hanging out over here. Sharma's brand doesn't have its own facility, so Rupee's brewed at the Dorchester Brewing Company. So this is our IPA, and uh, yeah, learning a little bit more about the actual story, Sultan Shur Singh Siri, he was the founder of the modern-day Indian rupee. When the British came to India, India was reigned by the Mughal Empire. This is around the time when the IPA came to existence. Releasing rupees IPA for Diwali made sense to Sharma because the Festival of Lights celebrates intentions. India is a very vibrant country. Our culture is super vibrant as well, from our weddings to our songs to Bollywood which is a huge staple if you're Indian. So for us, uh, Rupi really wants to make sure that the Western audience knows more about India, and we're doing it through liquid. Now Rupi, that started as a project for a family restaurant, is available at major retailers in 15 states and at local restaurants. Sharma plans to double that reach in 2024. Rupi's next style, a masala chai stout, will tell the story of India's spice trade this winter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea.
It is Friday, and that means StoryCorps here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 825, two lifelong friends, one Irish-American, the other Mexican-American, talk about growing up together in Tucson. It's 751. I'm Scott Tong. NPR's Steve Inskeep has been on the ground reporting from the Israel-Hamas conflict. There's some of these stone foundations hundreds of years old. This is like five, six hundred years old, most of it, but it's based on much older places. Steve Inskeep joins us next time in Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says more must be done to protect civilians in Gaza as Israeli troops go deeper into the Palestinian enclave. The FBI says it's investigating letters with suspicious substances, including fentanyl, sent to elections offices in at least five states this week. And the Massachusetts family shelter system has hit its limit for the first time in 40 years. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. A series of close calls on airport runways across the country has gotten the attention of aviation experts and lawmakers. A key Senate panel held a hearing yesterday on aviation safety. NPR's Joel Rose reports. The nation's top accident investigator came to Capitol Hill with a stark warning about the recent surge of close calls on runways around the country. While these events are incredibly rare... Our safety system is showing clear signs of strain that we cannot ignore. That's Jennifer Homendy, the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, which is investigating near collisions and safety incidents at major airports, including in Austin, New York, and Southern California. Homendy testified that a shortage of air traffic controllers is forcing many to work irregular schedules and mandatory overtime. It ends up leading to fatigue and distraction, which is exactly what we're seeing as part of these incident investigations. It all just comes down to the shortage of staffing. The volume of air travel has rebounded quickly after the COVID-19 pandemic, leaving the Federal Aviation Administration scrambling to hire enough air traffic controllers. In June, the Department of Transportation's Office of Inspector General found more than three-quarters of critical air traffic control facilities were short-staffed. The FAA's Tim Morrell says the agency is training as many new controllers as it can. We're working to hire, train, and certify as many controllers as possible. While we have a long way to go, many of the facilities are much healthier than they were previously. But the union representing controllers testified staffing levels remain far below where they should be. It's unsustainable and it needs to be changed. Rich Santa is the president of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. The answer is not continuing to burden us with more fatigue and continuing to burden us with more effort and work. It's hiring the right amount of controllers so that our facilities are not 70 and 60 and 80 percent staffed. Santa says the FAA needs more aggressive hiring goals so that controllers don't have to work mandatory six-day weeks and 10-hour days. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. It's been one year since Ukrainian forces freed the southern city of Kherson from Russian occupation. Liberation led Ukraine and its Western allies to believe even more territory could soon be freed. But now a second counteroffensive is stalled and Russia attacks Kherson nearly every day. Here's NPR's Joanna Kakissis. 
There's an eerie quiet in the maternity ward where Dr. Oksana Tomchenko used to deliver her son's babies. Before the war, we used to welcome 100 babies a month, she says. Nowadays, it seems more like 10. More than 70% of Herson's pre-war population of about 300,000 has fled. And in the past year, Russian missiles have struck this maternity hospital twice. Tomchenko was there both times. The whole district was under shelling, and one of the explosions was too loud, and I felt like the building shaking. And I uh, looked outside, and I saw the smoke, and I realized that the building, the hospital, was hit. The doctor says Russian forces have hit practically every hospital in the city. They know for sure the civilian facilities, civil infrastructure. I just can't explain why they are doing this. This is just cruel. Amazingly, she says, she doesn't know of anyone killed in hospitals during those strikes. But in the rest of the Kherson region, Russian attacks have killed more than 400 people, including 200 in the city in the past year since liberation. Hundreds more have been injured. We walk down a hospital hall to Tomchenko's office, and when she unlocks the door, we see folded clothes and jars of homemade pickled tomatoes amid the examining tables and bottles of medicine. Yes, I live here. This is my office, and also this is my like apartment. Oh my gosh, you live in your office? Uh, since the beginning of the year. It's a short drive from the hospital to the neighborhood she moved out of. We can see the Dnieper River in the distance. Her neighbor, Viktor Vereskun, says everyone used to picnic along the riverbanks before the Russians invaded. Do you ever go near the river? It's super dangerous. The Russians are less than a mile away, on the other side, always shooting. Vereskun calls the riverbank a kill zone. There's been no electricity in the neighborhood since a massive dam upstream was destroyed this summer, causing catastrophic flooding. Vedeskun watches a neighbor sweep the sidewalks outside their apartment building. Then he's interrupted. Here's the beginning of shower. Do you hear that all the time? Yes, every day. It's getting closer. You can hear more explosions a short walk away where a white-bearded naturalist named Mikhailo Podhani sits on a park bench. Aren't you worried? I'm listening to these explosions. Aren't you worried? Got used to it. Next to the park is the local history museum where he works. Podhani says he's stayed in Herson to take care of it. Usually after the first explosion, he says, people get in their cars and they drive away. The deputy head of the local military administration, Anton Yufanov, is nearby. He's worried about the coming winter and he says there aren't enough generators for everyone. He expects the Russians to strike Kherson's already damaged power grid. Our main task is to keep the situation in the city on the same level it is now. 
and not to let it get worse. Back at the hospital, Dr. Oksana Tomchenko takes us downstairs to the bomb shelter, which a team of workers is now expanding. The doctor points to new beds and medicine stockpiles. It's almost like they're building a whole new wing downstairs. Of course, we want the war to end soon, she says, but... And she stops there. She does not want to finish that sentence. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Herson. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel says its troops are pushing deeper into the Gaza Strip to find Hamas fighters, prompting even more people to flee. It's Friday, November 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up, West Virginia Senator, Democrat Joe Manchin, announces he will not seek re-election. Also this hour, the family shelter system in Massachusetts has hit a self-imposed cap on the number of people it can help. We'll take a look at what comes next. And we remember Frank Borman, NASA's oldest living astronaut. He commanded the first trip to the moon. The Earth was the only thing in the world, in the universe, that had any color. That was the most impressive sight for me of the entire flight. Today in Boston, clouds, temperatures reaching the low 50s. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The White House says President Biden will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping next Wednesday in the San Francisco Bay Area, ending what had been months of suspense about when the two leaders would speak face-to-face. This will be their first in-person interaction of 2023, NPR's Tamara Keith reports. This comes at a strained time in U.S.-China relations, and administration officials say they are coming into the meeting with realistic expectations. The last time the leaders met was a year ago. In the interim, a Chinese spy balloon floated over the U.S., ultimately getting shot down over the ocean. Xi embraced Russian President Putin. Tensions over Taiwan increased and communications between the U.S. and China broke down. Big, flashy announcements are unlikely with this meeting. Instead, the officials say the U.S. goals are to improve communications, avoid conflict, manage competition between the two nations responsibly, and stabilize the relationship. Tamara Keith, NPR News. U.N. Human Rights Chief Volker Turk has called on Israel to take immediate measures to protect Palestinians in the West Bank following an increase in violence against them since the conflict with Hamas began. It is clear that enduring peace and security cannot be delivered by the exercise of fury and pain against people who have no responsibility for the crimes that were committed, including And this is particularly shocking for UN, the 99 UNRWA staff members who have been killed so far. Turk says that both Hamas and Israel have been committing war crimes, and he urged both sides to seek peace. 
The family's shelter system in the state of Massachusetts has hit capacity. And as of today, for the first time in the system's 40-year history, the state will need to place needy families seeking shelter on a wait list for when a unit becomes available. Gabrielle Emanuel of member station WBUR in Boston has details. The family shelter population has surpassed all previous records, in part because of newly arrived migrant families. Governor Maura Healy capped the program last month at 75,000 households, saying the state is nearly out of money, space and service providers. Homeless advocates say this move runs afoul of the state's unique right to shelter law and are calling for a safe overflow site where families can wait. Gerald Gabot runs the Immigrant Family Services Institute. We know that we cannot turn our back on our families. So currently I'm getting a lot of sleeping bags ready. I'm calling as many churches, faith leaders as possible. Those fleeing domestic violence and those with serious medical conditions will be bumped to the top of the shelter wait list. For NPR News, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Dow futures are up 90 points. This is NPR News in Washington. Arizona has one of the strongest laws in the country to limit building where water is scarce. Builders have to show a subdivision has enough water to last 100 years. But some developers have found a way around that. NPR's Lauren Summer takes us to a development south of Phoenix, where some new homes are being built to rent instead of own. This is a great product to rent. Greg Hancock is president of Hancock Builders. He's been building homes in Arizona for more than four decades. Even with the water situation, Hancock didn't have to worry about a water supply for this project. We don't need an insured water supply because it's one lot. Although it is 331 units, it's one lot. These homes will be rented, not sold, to homeowners. And Arizona's water rules only apply to subdivisions where the land is broken up to build homes for sale. As a result, these build-to-rent projects have been booming in Arizona. We have finished 3,000. We have 3,000 more under construction and 5,000 more in pre-development. And concerns are growing, but that unaccounted growth could strain the water supply even more. That's NPR's Lauren Summer, part of NPR's series on home building and climate change. Environmentalists say they will fight a decision in Alaska where a federal judge has upheld the Biden administration's approval of the massive willow oil drilling project on Alaska's remote north slope. Judge Sharon Gleason ruled that ConocoPhillips Alaska has the right to develop its leases in the reserve subject to reasonable restrictions and mitigation measures. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. This morning, Governor Healy and other elected officials will attend a Veterans Day ceremony at Faneuil Hall. On the North Shore today, Massachusetts veterans will share stories of and reflections on their service. The event will be hosted by Congressman Seth Moulton, a veteran himself. WBUR's Rob Lane reports Moulton organized the first Veterans Town Hall in 2015. The congressman says the forum was inspired by writer Sebastian Junger and by what Moulton describes as a Native American tradition of warriors coming home and sharing stories of combat. Moulton says the veterans who will be speaking will bring diverse perspectives. I've heard from World War II veterans who miss the excitement of being in the service. We've heard from Iraq War veterans who truly regret what they were asked to do. We've heard from people who are just trying to figure out how to make it work back here at home. Moulton says those who did not serve are also welcome to attend to learn more about the lived experiences of veterans. 
The town hall will be held this afternoon in Marblehead. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Boston City Councilor Ruth Z. louis says she has enough support to become the council's next president. That role currently is held by Ed Flynn. louis received the most votes in the at-large council field during this week's election to win a second term. As council president, louis would lead council proceedings. She also would step in as acting mayor if Mayor Wu is unable to serve or if the mayor's position becomes vacant. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are considering proposals that would ban the sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits in pet shops. Supporters argue that animals bred in so-called mills out of state are raised in substandard conditions and develop health and behavioral issues. State Senator Patrick O'Connor of Weymouth sponsored one of the bills. He says this also presents a consumer protection issue. The Humane Society has reported that they receive large volumes of complaints every year from owners who have spent thousands of their own dollars in veterinary bills caring for sick puppies when the store that sold the puppy likely knew of these issues and never told them. Some pet store owners argue the bill would hurt retailers who work with responsible breeders. Many communities, including Boston, Cambridge, and Marshfield, already have local retail pet sale bans in place. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Bruins remain unbeaten in regulation at home. They topped the New York Islanders 5-2 last night at the Garden. The Bees visit the Montreal Canadiens tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the low 50s. Sunny tomorrow, a high near 50. Sunny again Sunday in the mid 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. In Gaza, there's the immediate toll of war. Thousands of people killed, families uprooted and homeless, communities destroyed. Now, a new report from the United Nations Development Program tries to measure what the war's long-term effects could be on Palestinian quality of life and the economy. Akeem Steiner heads the program, and he joins me now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Leila. So your report projects a sharp decline in Gaza's Human Development Index. It says this measure of well-being could drop by up to 19 years. What does that actually mean? Well, first of all, what we have tried to do is to use all the data available to assess the impact of the first month of of fighting and um, looking through the lens of poverty, job losses, internal displacement, housing stock, uh, GDP growth assess the impact on people and the economy and uh, essentially out of that comes some very sobering statistics a 20 percent increase in poverty 300,000 people in gaza thrown into poverty 61 percent of employment lost a 4.2 percent drop in gdp that's over 900 or 857 million just lost now we then use economic models to look at if the war continues for a second month how would that translate and so again poverty increases by 34 percent half a million people 
um, fall into poverty, $1.7 billion losses. And when you add that up in terms of loss of education, income, etc., we have a composite index, the Human Development Index that we publish for all countries uh, every year. And the setback for Gaza alone at the moment would be around 16 years of development loss, so to speak, in the occupied Palestinian territory due to the war in Gaza. Now, I'm sure you're seeing the images coming out of Gaza the last few days, tens of thousands of civilians walking, some with white flags, out of northern Gaza during these pauses in the fighting. There are more among more than one and a half million people displaced within the Gaza Strip. What does it mean to have so many internally displaced people in this besieged enclave when it comes to the effects on livelihood and well-being? Well, this is very much part of what we are also documenting as part of our development mandate together with our Economic and Social Commission. We are looking at the development crisis unfolding underneath the humanitarian catastrophe that we have been witnessing. And the importance of that is to realize that we are creating a set of conditions where, as you mentioned just now, one and a half million people displaced, 45% of the housing stock reportedly destroyed or damaged. Um, 40% of education facilities have been damaged. And the implications of that are that people have nowhere to live, they have no jobs, they have no income, their children are not going to school. The reverberations of this destruction goes into many years in the future. And that is why it is so important to understand that on top of the humanitarian crisis right now, it is about survival. We also need to focus on what will happen to the over 2.5 million residents who are essentially trapped within Gaza with the perspective of month three, month five, a year down the line. What will happen? I mean, if this you talked about this is the first month. If it goes into two, three months, five months, a year? Well, basically, our models show that the situation it simply gets more desperate. What we are seeing is that on top of a humanitarian crisis, it is a development crisis unfolding. Poverty levels will increase. GDP losses will increase. Human development uh, will be set back by possibly 16 or 19 years if the conflict continues into a second month. And that's what is most concerning is that we are essentially condemning two and a half million people to an uncertain future. Just to give you a reminder, in the 2021 conflict, uh, after one year, only 200 of the 1,700 destroyed homes had been rebuilt. So you have one and a half million displaced people 45% of the housing stock already destroyed. Imagine this goes on for another month. Um, it is simply a development nightmare that is building up. Also on the education side, with over 40% of education facilities already destroyed or affected, um, you literally have a generation of children not being able to pursue education. So again, looking to the future of human development, it is a very bleak outlook. Akeem Steiner heads the United Nations Development Program. Thank you for your time. Thank you. For more coverage and for differing views and analysis, go to npr.org slash updates. Democrats in West Virginia are waking up to a new reality. And Republicans there are seeing an opportunity to pick up a Senate seat that's long been out of reach. After months of deliberation and long conversation with my family, I believe in my heart of hearts, that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. 
That's Democrat Joe Manchin announcing in a video news release that he will not run for re-election. Here to tell us more is NPR's Dave Mistich, who joins us now from Morgantown, West Virginia. Dave, Manchin's a moderate from a red state. Uh, He holds a lot of power because Democrats hold a very slim majority of the Senate. So how does he wield that influence? Well, he sometimes really irked his own party and changed the dynamics of key legislation and votes. Going all the way back to the Trump era, Manchin was the only Democrat who voted to confirm Justice Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And Manchin has also been rather pivotal in influencing legislation pushed by the Biden administration, notably the Inflation Reduction Act and a bipartisan bill on infrastructure. He also managed to slip a provision into the debt ceiling bill that expedited a long-stalled pipeline that runs through West Virginia and into Virginia, much to the dismay of many of his Democratic colleagues in Congress. State Senator Mike Caputo, one of the few Democrats holding a seat in the state house, had this to say about Manchin. The most powerful Joe in Washington is not Joe Biden, it's Joe Manchin, because he really held the big stick in the Senate and uh, was able to maneuver and I hate to use the word play, but able to work the system as well as anybody. So now that he's putting that stick down in the Senate, I mean, what does this do to the balance of power there? Well, quite frankly, it gives a big advantage to Republicans seeking to flip that seat. It's one that's been seen as pivotal as to who will control the Senate following next year's elections. And it's a big loss for Democrats here in West Virginia. Republicans took over the state house in Charleston in 2014 for the first time in more than eight decades. Manchin is the only Democrat representing the state in Congress. And then you have former President Donald Trump, who dominated here in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. Democrats here, they, they tell me that they don't feel like Manchin calculated a loss if he ran again. But, you know, they say they see it as him feeling like this was just time to walk away from the Senate. Realistically, though, if he was in this race, Manchin would have been in for a tough fight for sure. And, you know, there's two strong Republican candidates already in the race, Republican Governor Jim Justice, who has been endorsed by former President Trump, and Alex Mooney, who currently holds a seat in Congress. All right. So now that he dropped this on West Virginia, he dropped this on the Senate. What's he going to do next? Well, Manchin says he will travel the country to gauge interest in a movement to, quote, mobilize the middle. He's been featured at events sponsored by the group No Labels, which has been focused on a third party ticket, drawing questions about whether or not he is considering a run for president himself. No Label sent me over a statement last night that said that the Senate is losing a great leader in Mansion, but they said they're still gathering input on what they call a unity ticket, and they say they won't announce their plans until 2024. And if President Biden is concerned at all about how a third-party run might affect his own plans for re-election, he isn't really showing it when it comes to Mansion. The president put out a statement last night thanking the senator for some key wins for his administration. Yeah, they've known each other a long time. That's NPR's Dave Mistich. Dave, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Astronaut Frank Borman has died at the age of 95. He was the nation's oldest living astronaut, and he commanded Apollo 8, the first trip to the moon. Borman was a no-nonsense pilot who cared more about beating what was then known as the Soviet Union than the personal glory. NPR's Russell Lewis has this remembrance. Apollo 8 was a daring mission, the first time humans left low Earth orbit and went to the moon almost a quarter million miles away. Apollo 8, Houston, one minute to LOS, all systems go. 
the crew arrived on Christmas Eve 1968 and circled the moon 10 times. The world watched in awe during live TV broadcasts that showed the cratered and foreboding lunar landscape and listened in as the astronauts read a passage from the book of Genesis. What surprised Borman during the mission was not looking down at the moon, but peering back at the planet. The Earth was the only thing in the world and the universe that had any color. Everything else was black and white, but the Earth was beautiful blue and white and brownish continents. That was the most impressive sight for me of the entire flight. This mission captured the famous Earthrise photo, showing the Earth rising above the barren and gray moon. In a 2018 NPR interview, Frank Borman said so much was riding on the flight, and it rested on him as commander to make sure nothing went wrong. My major concern was that somehow the crew would screw up. I didn't want us to be the ones that, I wanted us to do everything perfectly. Perfection was part of Borman's DNA. He graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, entered the Air Force, flew fighter jets, and became a test pilot. He was never one to stray from a checklist or break the rules. Robert Curson wrote a book on Apollo 8 entitled Rocket Men. He says Borman was a quintessential military officer who believed in one thing, beating the Soviet Union. To him, that's what it was all about, that space was the ultimate battlefield where really the future of war was to be waged. And he believed that their mission was to beat the Soviets, who were an existential threat to us at the time. Borman left NASA after Apollo 8. Unlike other astronauts at the time, he says he never wanted to land on the moon and had no regrets he didn't get the chance. I could have cared less about walking on the moon. You know, I would have done it if I had the mission, but I never had the... It, in other words, it wasn't a an emotional thing for me to go step on the moon. But I wanted to be part of the team that beat the Russians. After NASA, Borman joined Eastern Airlines, eventually becoming its CEO. Borman said he hoped the U.S. would return to the moon one day and maybe even make it to Mars. Russell Lewis, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, U.S. Customs and Border Protection says rescues at the southern border increased 67 percent between July and September. It's 821. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On last week's Wait, Wait, Maeve Higgins had a great idea for a hit nature show. It's called Bear With Me. You just do normal things, but there's a bear with you the whole time. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's news quiz where celebrity DJ Steve Aoki joins us as we do our normal things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. 
from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. Anime Martinez, teachers in Portland, Oregon are striking for an eighth school day. The teachers union is demanding higher pay and smaller class sizes. District administrators say they just don't have the money. Katia Riddle has been talking to families in Portland to hear how they're coping with the walkout. There are roughly 45,000 students in this district. Some schools are still serving as food distribution points for families who need it. But child care has fallen to people like Guillermina Cruz. She's standing in her mobile home. It's in a northeast corner of town. There's a gaggle of kids around her. Right here are two um, friends of my son. He's my son, Anthony, my daughter, Alina, my stepdaughter, Mariana, uh, my daughter, uh, Melody, uh, my niece, Sophia, and my son is um, Junior. How many was that total? I think nine, ten. <laughs> Cruz is one of the few parents in her community without a day job. She's become mom to the whole neighborhood this week. She says they're getting by, but these kids should be in school. They need to learn something. They miss a classmate. It's not like a vacation. It's not like a spring break or whatever. Other families are leaning on grandparents or organizing kid swaps. Facebook message boards are full of grumbling and speculation about how long the strike will last. A whole industry of strike camps has sprung up overnight. We both work and we both work a lot. Jackie Tran is a media producer. Her husband is an art director. They were at first excited to find a camp for their eight-year-old daughter, Antonia. But after two hours, they got a phone call. It sounded like um, Antonia was just like, she had, she just had it and she was like miserable and just wanted to go home. She didn't know anyone. She was lonely and scared. They went to pick her up, but that left Tran and her husband, Tem Saputo, back at square one. We can't just have her sitting at home. Like, we don't even have the time to organize, like, play dates every day. Like, what yeah. are we supposed to do? And, like, sync up with other parents' schedule who are also trying to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, like, that's like a whole full-time job. They found another place to go, but they estimate they've spent $500 on camps this week and at least six hours organizing logistics. Some families are making do without childcare. 12-year-old Brianna Vasquez has been home alone with her 10-year-old brother. Her dad works in construction. He's always calling me all the time to make sure I'm okay and we're safe. Mm -hmm. Did you guys eat? Um, how are you guys? Are you guys okay? Is your brother home? Where's your brother? Her dad, Luis Vasquez, says it's hard to concentrate at work when he's worrying about his kids. You know, as a, like, uh... I cannot work like, uh, like uh, I'm not comfortable working, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking about what are they doing. His daughter says it's not so bad at home, but she'd rather be at school. I do miss school because like all my friends and all that, and I miss like one specific teacher. That teacher, she says, is always on her side. Union negotiations will continue over the weekend. Parents may have to wait until Sunday night to know if next week will bring more of the same or if their kids will be headed back to school. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. Time now for StoryCorps. 
Today, a friendship that goes back 80 years. When Jim Murphy was nine, his Irish-American family moved to the south side of Tucson, Arizona. They were one of many families that migrated west after World War II. Carlos Velas Ibanez and his Mexican-American family were already living there. Jim and Carlos recently sat down to remember growing up in a working-class part of town. Do you remember the first time we met? I think it was on the bus. It never came on time. <laughs> It was always breaking down. And it was green and yellow. Oh, it was a hideous color. When we moved uh, from Pennsylvania, I had never heard of Mexico or Mexican. We lived in a government housing project. There were army barracks made into living units around a big dirt field. Some of the Irish kids thought we were Italian. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so they called us WAPs, right? So we used to ask each other, ¿Qué es esto de guapos? What is that? And we used to beat the heck out of each other. I used to get an awful lot of nonsense. I had to fight an Anglo kid because he called me a Mexican so-and-so. But we were all Catholic, and that's what really joined an awful lot of us together. We used to see each other on, on Sundays. So the, the, the difference between us in that setting was erased. Mm-hmm. And then we started meeting each other's brothers and sisters. My sister Lucy began to be courted by young Brendan Flannery. I fell madly in love with whom? Carol Ann McLean. I learned Irish Catholicism was more like Mexican Catholicism in their almost ferociousness of belief. Many Anglos, in fact, learned Spanish, and we also intermarried with each other. I, I've grown to love Mexican food. Uh, the Mexican music, I think Mexican music is somewhat like Irish music. I can only stand so much of it, but after a while, <laughs> it all sounds the same. And I feel that I could pick up the phone and call you and ask you for something if I needed it, and, and you'd be there. You got it. Because of our experience in the South Side, there's a foundation that you and I have of understanding. Yeah, Absolutely. That's Carlos Velas Ibanez and Jim Murphy. They recently attended their 50-year high school reunion together, and their conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are next. And coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, Massachusetts officials say the state's family shelter system has reached its limit. So starting today, families seeking shelter will be placed on a wait list. It's 830. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden plans to meet with China's President Xi Jinping next week in California. Senior U.S. officials say Biden and Xi plan to hold their first face-to-face talks in a year next Wednesday in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit is also scheduled to get underway. Vice President Harris is heading to South Carolina today to file paperwork for the state's primary. NPR's Asma Khaled reports. Harris will be in Columbia to file paperwork for President Biden's name to appear on the Democratic primary ballot in South Carolina. Democrats moved South Carolina to the start of their new primary calendar. It's the state that resuscitated Biden's campaign in 2020, and the state's large base of black voters were key to Biden's victory that year. Harris will be joined by South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's long been a close ally of the administration. This trip comes on the heels of Tuesday's office your election that showed some strengths for Democrats, but also as polls show voters are concerned about the economy and the president's age. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says more needs to be done to protect Palestinian civilians in Gaza amid the war between Israel and Hamas. He was speaking in India. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. Families seeking a place to stay with the state's shelter system are now being put on a wait list. State officials say they hit a self-imposed cap yesterday with more than 7,500 families in the system in Massachusetts. The system's been put under pressure by a rising number of migrant families. Sherlyn Dubon is with the group La Collaborativa, which works with those migrants. The families are, you know, pretty sad, pretty upset. They're tired, frustrated. Kids are hungry. Um, they haven't eaten all day, waiting. You know, we don't have nowhere to send this family. The state is looking for places that can be used for temporary shelter, such as the Heinz Convention Center. Public school teachers in Andover are striking for higher pay and more benefits today. Schools in the district were set to open today, despite the Veterans Day holiday. The school committee says it will still provide students with boxed breakfast and lunches, Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. That has not stopped teachers in several other public school districts from striking in the past two years. Those include Brookline, Malden, Woburn, and Haverhill. The Boston brewers of an Indian craft beer brand are celebrating Diwali with a new creation. Diwali is India's biggest holiday, and it's this Sunday. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. Van Sharma and his brother developed Ruby during the pandemic when their parents in Maine couldn't get Indian beers delivered to their restaurants. Ruby's new India Pale Ale goes back to the 19th century when British brewers made highly hopped IPAs that could survive the voyage between London and India. India is a very vibrant country. Our culture is super vibrant as well, from our weddings to our songs to Bollywood, which is a huge staple if you're Indian. So for us, Uh, Rupi really wants to make sure that the Western audience knows more about India, and we're doing it through liquid. 
Rupee is available in 15 states, including Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 834. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins beat the New York Islanders 5-2 last night at the Garden. Thanks to a hat trick from Charlie Coyle, it's the first of his career. The Bees hit the road tomorrow to play the Montreal Canadiens. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Brooklyn Nets. Baseball is honoring Red Sox third baseman Rafael Devers with the Silver Slugger Award. It goes to the league's best hitters. This is his second time winning the award. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the low 50s. Temperatures overnight dropping into the 30s. Sunny tomorrow, Saturday's high near 50. Sunny again on Sunday in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez at Iowa Public Radio in Ames, Iowa. Tens of thousands of Palestinians are fleeing Gaza City on foot. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told Fox News yesterday that Israel is granting civilians a route to escape each day from northern Gaza. The fighting continues against the Hamas terrorists, but in specific locations for a given period of a few hours, we want to facilitate a safe passage of civilians away from the zone of fighting, and we're doing that. This morning, Gaza's health ministry says Israel struck Gaza's main hospital. Israel says a Hamas command center is located beneath the hospital, a claim that the militant group denies. With us now, we're joined by NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, tell us about uh, how people are trying to get out of Gaza City. Yeah, Israel has been doing this every day since Sunday. They've announced a few hours for people to flee from northern Gaza. This is the main population center in Gaza City. The road that they are fleeing on is so torn up that it's hard to drive on, and so people are fleeing on foot. This began in smaller numbers earlier this week, but it's ramped up just in the last couple of days. More than 100,000 people are estimated to have fled so far, and our producer Anas Baba watched the masses walking in the sun. I can hear an intensive clashes while the people are evacuating. They're just like holding white flags between their hands. Every one of them is telling me the same thing. My arms is killing me because I was raising them in the air for the past one hour. (laughs) She couldn't find her 10-year-old daughter, Dana Abuzanada. She was missing. And other scenes of just pandemonium as people were walking along this route. Others saying they were walking past Israeli tanks on both sides of the road and walking past dead bodies strewn in the road. Elderly people saying they were panting from exhaustion. People were thirsty. And people saying they didn't know where they were going next. But they were describing the conditions that they were fleeing in North Gaza. Uh, No water, no food, no internet, um, and and just a, a worsening humanitarian situation there. So what's Israel's plan on the ground there in Gaza? 
There are reports that Israeli tanks are close to Shifa Hospital. That's Gaza's main hospital. As Leila said earlier, Gaza health officials have said that today there was a direct strike on the maternity ward. We are still gathering information. Israel's military hasn't commented on that yet. But there have been these debates in Israel whether this hospital can become a legitimate military target. On the one hand, you have thousands of Palestinians sheltering in the hospital. You have surgeons performing surgeries on the war wounded. On the other hand, Israel claims that Hamas uses this hospital to take cover. It claims that Hamas has built underground command center uh, tunnels under the under the hospital. Now, as for what is next in Israel's military strategy, I attended a briefing with Minister Benny Gantz. He is on Israel's war cabinet. He says Israel does not know how long the campaign in Gaza will last. He says Israel doesn't even know who will rule Gaza after the war but that Israel must maintain security superiority there in the long term. What about people in Israel? What's uh, what's the mood there? How are they feeling? Well, besides the intense anxiety, you know, with the rocket fire, although somewhat lessened now, continuing, um, Israeli cities and towns are arming themselves. They say that's the lesson of the October 7th attacks. They're forming security squads. The U.S. is sending weapons for those squads. And human rights groups in Israel are warning about a trend of crackdowns, Israeli police crackdowns on anti-war protests. There were some Arab community leaders planning a demonstration who were detained and released. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. Crossings along the nation's southern border are at an all-time high. Officials report more than 2.4 million apprehensions in a year-long period ending in September. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is moving ahead with plans to add some 20 miles to the border wall in Texas, and it has resumed deportation flights to Venezuela. NPR's Jasmine Gartz joins us now from the California-Mexico border. Jasmine, uh, why are migrants crossing? Why, Why is that number going up? Well, I think something that gets lost in this conversation is the number of displaced people around the world has never been this high. That's according to the U.N., And you can really see that at the border. I spent time in Tijuana this week. I talked to people in line who had applied online and gotten appointments with Customs and Border Protection. And one man I spoke to, his name was Piotr. He's a Russian medical specialist. And he was traveling with his wife and two teenage boys. They left because there's a war. Russia, it's so difficult. Mm. I can't describe it. It's so difficult for me. Catastrophe. He kept repeating that word, catastrophe, catastrophe. And he asked that his last name be withheld because he still has family back home and he's scared for them. All right, so he and his family applied online and they got this interview with Customs and Border Protection to enter the U.S. with permission, which is all part of President Biden's immigration policy. But... Does that mean that the policy is actually working? Yes and no. The policy is twofold. Uh, On the one hand, punish most people who cross the border without papers. On the other, expand legal pathways, which is what Piotr was doing. But the wait to get these interviews for legal entry can be very long. And many people who are fleeing terrifying situations, they get desperate. Another person I met in line was Rosi Alejandra. She was a medical student in Venezuela. She says government harassment has gotten unbearable there. Her hope is to eventually get to Florida, where she has family. 
hubieron momentos de desespero, ¿sí? Porque pues ya al llegar hay un mes, dos meses, como que era mucho tiempo. Entonces, so she fled Venezuela and she lived in shelters in Mexico for months while she waited for her appointment. And during that time, she says she considered just crossing the border without papers. But she knew people who tried that and they got deported. And she says being deported back to Venezuela for her, that would mean putting her life at risk. So she just decided it wasn't worth it. Wow. You know, we've been hearing from officials in New York and other cities like that who say their shelters are full. They can't take any more migrants, not one more. Uh, the people you spoke to in Tijuana, are they aware of these kind of realities in, in American cities? Oh, absolutely. Over and over, I heard concerns like, will I be able to get shelter? Will there be xenophobia? Will I be allowed to work? But everyone I spoke to said that at the end of the day, it can't be worse than where they're coming from. And, you know, on the topic of jobs, um, something uh, that, that I keep meeting migrants like Rossi or Piotr, who were in fields like medicine, where there are shortages in the U.S. And I think this is going to be a major issue in the upcoming election, immigration and labor shortages. Jasmine Gartz is NPR's immigration correspondent. She joined us from San Diego, California. Jasmine, thanks for bringing us this. Thank you. Big game hunting is big in Wyoming, but last winter's harsh weather killed thousands of deer and antelope, so some hunters are voluntarily sitting out this season to give herds time to recover. That story later today on All Things Considered. Now to listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report. The FDA has approved a new weight loss drug. Eli Lilly is set bound under Monjaro when it was just a diabetes drug. These drugs can help people lose pounds. It is not yet clear how much they will add to health care costs. It's 44 degrees in Boston, clouds today, highs in the low 50s, tonight lows in the 30s, a sunny Saturday, tomorrow's high near 50, on Sunday, sunny again, highs in the mid 40s. In business news, Boston's open-air holiday market, known as the Snowport, is returning to the seaport today. WBUR's Stevie Chapman tells us what to expect. More than 120 small businesses are participating in the third annual market. You should really come visit us and check out the market. Jamie Manning is the owner of New Hampshire-based bakery Love & Flour. She says the final months of the year make up more than one-third of her annual sales. These markets really are vital to us being able to go into some slower months in the beginning of the new year. Ariel Foxman oversees the snowport for WS Development, which hosts the market. He expects more than 1 million visitors this year. We know from our retailers and restaurants in the vicinity that they see an increase in audience who is here to have a good time, to buy gifts, and to look at new resources. The Snowport Market will remain open through New Year's Eve. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. The Waltham-based fuel distributor Global Partners is nearly doubling its storage capacity. That's thanks to a more than $300 million deal to buy 25 fuel terminals across the country. Global says the deal will strengthen its footprints along the Atlantic and Gulf coasts. It's 845. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Sharon Brody. For the first time in its 40-year history, the Massachusetts family shelter system has hit its limit. More than 7,500 families are in the system right now, and the state says that is all it can support. So eligible families now will go on a wait list. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel has been following this story closely and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. What is going to happen to families today who have nowhere safe to stay and are asking for help? Well, that is a real question mark. What we know is families will be prioritized based on several criteria. So those fleeing domestic violence and those with certain medical conditions like a high-risk pregnancy, they will be bumped up on the list. But this doesn't mean they get a room right away. We also know the state is planning to email, text, or call when a spot opens up. Some advocates worry families will miss these calls. It can be hard to charge your phone when moving around. Also, some people have international numbers because part of what's happening here is more new immigrants are coming to Massachusetts. They now make up about half of the family shelter population. Where are families supposed to go if they're on the wait list? Right. That is the big question. The state is trying to find overflow sites, but there's nothing yet. So there is a $5 million fund to help community groups set up overnight shelters, but that is just getting up and running. Governor Moore Healy says she's asked the federal government for help, and state lawmakers are considering some extra funding that could require an overflow site. But right now, the family welcome centers will offer food and diapers and things like that, but not a place to stay. What are advocacy groups saying about this? Yeah, they're really worried. They expect families will turn to places like Logan Airport, hospital emergency departments, their cars even. I spoke with Gerald Gabot, who runs a group that works with Haitian immigrants. It's called IFSI. She's been gathering sleeping bags for waitlisted families. We hope that we do not have to really reach that point where we have to transform our office into like a overnight shelters. But at the same time, we know that we cannot turn our back on our families. State officials say the shelter system is just growing too large for its budget, and they blame the federal government for not solving the immigration situation. Gabriella, what what can you tell us about other places experiencing similar strains on their family shelter systems, especially those also seeing a spike in their migrant populations? So yes, many places around the country are facing similar pressures, as you say, and many are also hitting a breaking point. The responses vary. In New York, which is the other place with a legally established right to shelter, the mayor told families they can only stay in a shelter for 60 days. After that, they have to leave and reapply. In Chicago, the shelter system is full and thousands of people, particularly migrants, and including little, little kids, are sleeping in police stations or in tents just outside the stations. Here is Sam paler Pointe from the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. At a typical police station, it looks like tents up and down the, the sidewalk. It's very, very crowded, which is completely upending the homeless services system. 
The stories from Chicago are really heart-wrenching. One volunteer described a woman having a miscarriage at a police station. What are you watching for next here in Massachusetts? Yeah, I think we'll have to see how the waitlist rolls out and how long families are waiting. I'll be looking at who ends up supporting these families. Is it nonprofits or municipalities or is it hospitals with mass health footing the bill? And will the state manage to set up some congregate sites for short term shelter? And of course, a big, big question is additional funding from the state or the federal level. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour here on 90.9 WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll investigate the deadly wildfire that devastated Maui in August. Plus, you'll take a look at a rare type of echidna, an animal not seen in the last 60 years, but that has been spotted again. It's 8.50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu slash met. We're a year out from the presidential election, and already a political battle is brewing over misinformation. But conservative backlash has some experts scared to talk about the problem. In Republican circles, misinformation is a dog whistle. You know, it blew up and all of a sudden, man, you got skewered if you even mentioned the word. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. President Biden will meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping for the first time in a year next week during an economic summit in California. The United Nations head of human rights is calling for an investigation into Israel's bombing of Gaza. In Andover, public school teachers are on strike. They're calling for higher pay and more benefits. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. It's 44 degrees in Boston, highs today reaching the low 50s. Then you can expect sunshine tomorrow and Sunday, high tomorrow near 50 on Sunday in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. With Hollywood performers set to get back to work if the tentative contract is approved, movie theaters may have a tough few months more. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio with a tentative deal between SAG-AFTRA, the union, studios, and producers. The strike that started in July has ended, but there's a supply chain here, and at one far end is the movie theater. Marketplace's Henry App reports. 
Tim Handren is CEO of Santicos Entertainment, a chain of movie theaters in San Antonio, Texas. He's been warily watching a snag in his supply chain, but he says... There's now a, a foreseeable end to the disruption in the supply chain that's been going on for the last six months. The supply is new movies coming to theaters. Production has been paused for most films, and some releases have already been pushed back months, like the sequel to Dune, says Matthew Bellany, who covers the industry for Puck News. Dune was supposed to come out last weekend and make a bunch of money. It didn't, and it was one of the lowest grossing weekends of the year. And he says since studios are scrambling to restart productions, there could be more disappointing weekends ahead. Still, Tim Handren in San Antonio is optimistic. He says the success of movies like Barbie this past summer showed audiences do want to come back to theaters. When there's content that's coming out, people are flocking to the movie theaters as they always have. The question is, will there be enough content to keep that going? I'm Henry App for Marketplace. The FDA's approved a shot to help people lose weight. Another one, Eli Lilly's ZepBound, sold under Manjaro when it was a diabetes drug. It's new competition for the wildly popular injectable Wagovi from competitor Novo Nordisk. While these drugs can quickly help people lose pounds, it's not yet clear how much they will add to healthcare costs. Marketplace's Kimberly Adams has more. Obesity in this country is common and expensive. John Cauley is a professor of economics and public policy at Cornell University and says almost 42 percent of Americans are obese. The medical care costs to obesity are about $289 billion just among adults and another $16 billion among youth per year. Cauley says for now, many people taking these new weight loss drugs are just paying cash, so it's not showing up much in insurance premiums. But that will likely change as more doctors and insurance companies start treating obesity as a disease rather than a lifestyle choice. But, says David Rind, chief medical officer for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. When you have a fairly expensive drug that is appropriate for a condition that 40% of the adults in the U.S. have, and many of that 40% of adults are interested in taking, you're talking enormous numbers of dollars. These drugs list for upwards of $1,000 a month. And even if insurance companies negotiate those rates down, and there are rebates, when insurance companies, private or government, do cover it, that money comes from somewhere, either through higher taxes and higher premiums, or you're shifting it from other things that need money too, for now, it's too early to tell exactly what these weight loss drugs will mean for overall health care costs. But researchers see a significant upside in the long run, like reduced rates of heart disease and diabetes, which are also expensive to treat. Allison Sexton Ward is a research scientist at the Schaefer Center at the University of Southern California. With treatment of obesity, you'll see a reduction in a lot of the costs. And as more drugs come to market, that will continue to drive down the price. Eli Lilly's drug is priced about 21% lower than Novo Nordisk's, so that price competition is already getting started. In Washington, I'm Kimberly Adams for Marketplace. Financial markets are still open on this Veterans Day observed. I see Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures all up three-tenths percent now. The 10-year interest rate is down at the moment, 4.57 percent.
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by Turkey Confidential, the Splendid Tables annual Thanksgiving show. Join Francis Lamb as he takes calls and answers questions from Thanksgiving cooks, kitchen helpers, and dinner guests. This year marks half a century since the revolutionary arcade game Pong got a wide release to bars and arcades. We note that there are moments in U.S. history when arcade games, pinball, and the like were outlawed in some cities and states. And there's enduring interest for playing the oldies, which is at the heart of a business model for a fellow Californian who turned his teenage passions into a flourishing enterprise. Hi, I'm Gene Lewin. I'm the owner of Vintage Arcade Superstore in Glendale, California. I remember the first day I went to a, riding my bike with a friend, and he said, do you want to play pinball? And I had only seen it in other, other states because it was illegal in Los Angeles, where I grew up, and played it, and I won a replay. I was hooked. That was in 72. So after that, arcades started springing up everywhere, and I went to all of them, rode my bike. This arcade was going out of business, selling all their games. I gave them a deposit. I went home to tell my parents on buying a pinball machine. And then I started tinkering with it. I met a guy that knew something about it and started showing me stuff. And um, when I realized maybe I can actually do this, that's all I wanted to do. I first put my pinball machine in a billiard place that I used to play games at. None of their games worked right and mine was perfect but made more money than the others. Then I talked to him about a second game and a third game, eventually put all of my games in and take the other guys out. Talked him into taking over the whole place. That was in 76 and 77. Then I opened my first arcade in 1980 and I ran arcades all the way to 1998. And there's big pinball tournaments too that I like to go to. So I won the vintage tournament. They have vintage or classic they call it and then modern. So the funny thing about the vintage tournaments is I'm playing on games that I played when I was a teenager, and a lot of the guys I'm playing against weren't born yet. Entrepreneur Gene Lewin at Vintage Arcade Superstore in Glendale, California. That story comes to us from the team at Marketplace's Million Bazillion, our podcast about money for kids. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM, American Public Media. The BBC NewsHour is next here on 90.9 WBUR. Not a bad fall weekend in store. 44 degrees now. Clouds today. Highs in the low 50s. Overnight temperatures dropping into the 30s. Sunny tomorrow. High near 50. And on Sunday, sunshine with highs in the mid 40s. I'm Scott Tong. NPR's Steve Inskeep has been on the ground reporting from the Israel-Hamas conflict. There's some of these stone foundations hundreds of years old. This is like five, six hundred years old, most of it, but it's based on much older places. Steve Inskeep joins us next time in Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.